0: Presenting One Soldier, A Canadian Soldier's Fight Against the Islamic State Written by Dylan and Russell Hillier Read by the author This book is dedicated to the many victims of the Islamic State and all those who fought and died against evil Twenty-six November two thousand fourteen, Talal Ward, twenty kilometers south of Kirkuk. I looked up to the heavens in wonder. It wasn't supposed to snow in this land of desert heat and sand. That's the way I had pictured Iraq since a child, and yet small white flakes falling from the gray clouds above left a fleeting trace of snow, which was no mirage. I had harbored the same misconception about Afghanistan but remembered clearly how the mountain peaks surrounding Kabul were capped in white by the time the last Canadian soldier left that desolate land. I had been on that last deployment to Afghanistan exactly one year ago, but now I was in Iraq, fighting a very different war. The enemy, however, was the same. Taliban, ISIS, Islamic fundamentalists, terrorists, jihadists, the list can go on but the name doesn't really matter. In the end, they belong to an evil and a brutal group that needs to be put down with lethal force. That's exactly what I was in Iraq to do. I had quit my job and sold my car, and with the money, I bought a one-way ticket from Canada to Kurdistan. After a flight halfway around the world, I had arrived on a personal mission to fight against the Islamic State. This was my calling. I knew that this is what I was meant to do. The biting wind howled and my body jostled with every bump and crater in the back of the white Toyota pickup truck, bringing me back to where my mind needed to be. I wasn't sure where we were going, only that the convoy was traveling west through flatlands where the only visible color was a drab brown that lent an air of impoverishment to everything it touched. Earlier that morning, a man named Agar and one of the few Kurds in the PKK unit who could speak a semblance of broken English had simply said, Grab your gun and Smudbeg, Where are we going and for how long, I asked. But Agar had either ignored the question or didn't understand my English words. Then he jumped into a waiting vehicle, leaving me with unanswered questions. The mixed convoy of pickup trucks and SUVs loaded with Kurdish fighters had left the military base and hadn't stopped driving since. The Kurds were keeping me in the dark during the journey, and even if the other armed men in the back of the moving truck had been willing to share any intel, there was not one of them who could speak a word of English. I pulled a black toque over my ears to keep warm against the buffeting winds that made a howling noise over the exposed truck bed. Then something caught my eye. I saw black and white smoke billowing upward ahead of the truck in several columns from a sand berm that stretched as far across the landscape as a man could see. The truck sped forward, and the eerie howl returned, but it wasn't the wind, nor was it the sound of the wild dogs that roamed the bleak landscape. It was the sound of war and for the first time ever I heard a Katusha rocket scream through the air. A Kurdish battery was firing the Soviet-era rockets, and they exploded wildly into jihadi-held positions that lay on the far side of a canal about a half a kilometer away. Now I knew where I was. I didn't need Agar or anyone else to tell me that I had reached the front lines in the war against ISIS. This is what I had come to Kurdistan for. This would be a day of blood, death, Tears, and as the sun set, I gave a whispered thanks that I had survived the ultimate test of a man. Good men and bad were killed and wounded on this day, and I added to the casualty toll. You can never forget days like this, and I did my part to fight those who serve evil. The place was called Talal Ward, and this is my story. Chapter 2. Arrival in Kurdistan when the plane touched down, I followed the line of disembarking passengers to the baggage carousal and looked for Lieutenant Ali, who was supposed to pick me up. I had never met the Peshmerga officer in person, but we had talked on Skype, and I was sure I would be able to spot him, but he was nowhere to be seen. Without Lieutenant Ali, I knew that I would be walking around blind in a foreign land. Though there were a couple of other white faces at the airport, I was the only young man and I felt like a target. In the back of my mind, I wondered if ISIS had been tipped off to my arrival and was waiting for me. There were people I didn't really know who knew about my arrival, and any one of them could have passed the word on to ISIS for financial gain. That's how kidnappings happen. I tried to keep an eye on my surroundings, but if ISIS was going to get me here, there wasn't much I could do about it. There were Peshmerga soldiers in the airport, and I could feel their eyes upon me. I looked back at them, studying their faces, trying to spot the lieutenant. When the bags started arriving, one of the Peshmerga soldiers approached. He looked to be in his thirties and had the trappings and the accoutrements of an officer. Dylan, he asked in a thick accent, and then extended his hand before I had a chance to answer. Where's Lieutenant Ali, I asked. He couldn't make it. He sent us instead. The soldier motioned to three other uniformed men who stood off to the side watching us. They had sidearms, rifles, and camel-patterned uniforms. Damn! Already my plans for a smooth insertion into Kurdistan had been dashed. My single greatest fear was that I would not meet Lieutenant Ali and would be taken at the airport by unknown people and then turned over to ISIS. This is exactly how it would happen. But what could I do? Some things were out of my hands and trusting the right people was one of them. I had to have some faith or else there would be no mission. At least the men waiting for me had uniforms and looked like legitimate soldiers. They cleared me through customs, grabbed my bags, and then loaded them into a white Toyota pickup truck, the workhorse of this desert war. Without Lieutenant Ali, I was uncomfortable getting into the truck and felt defenseless. I wished that I had managed to at least conceal a knife on my person as a last resort should things go badly, but I had no opportunity. The airport was just outside the city of Sulamanea, and I knew the Peshmerga base was somewhere close by. As the truck rolled down the highway, I had no idea if we were traveling in the right direction. For all I knew, we were headed to the front, where a group of bearded jihadis would be waiting for me. But when the truck sped into the city, I felt a bit of relief. If things were going to go badly, I figured it would happen in the remote part of the countryside, rather than an urban setting. Sulamanea is a sprawling city of about 1.5 million people, hemmed in by mountains and hills on all sides, by far the biggest urban center in northeastern Iraq. An uprising in 1991 during the Gulf War expelled the Iraqi forces of Saddam Hussein from the city, as well as from the Kurdish capital of Erbil and all the other major towns in between. The creation of an American no-fly zone during the 1990s acted as a shield against Iraqi aggression, and Kurdistan was given the space it needed to evolve into a de facto state. I don't think you can find a place in the world that loves America, Texas, and both George Bushes more than Kurdistan. As we drove through the city, I tried to take everything in. It's a Kurdish city, but the Western influences are everywhere, especially the Western style of clothes and fashion. The way ISIS sees it, Kurdistan is a stain of Western liberalism that has to be wiped off the map. And, if the Peshmerga defenses should ever fall, the jihadis would take pleasure in raping and pillaging their way through the twisting streets of this city. I chose to fight for Kurdistan for the very reasons that ISIS wants to eliminate it, and it angered me that so many of my own countrymen had chosen to join this side of evil. There were several Muslims and recent converts from Calgary, and even some from a small town only an hour's drive from where I grew up, who had volunteered to fight under the black and white banners of the Caliphate. Even though my own government stated that my mission was the wrong course of action, I felt it was my duty to even the score on the people who turned their backs on Canada and everything it stands for. It was only when the truck pulled up to the sprawling Peshmerga military base that I knew with certainty that I was safe. I'm sure my sigh of relief was audible when we drove through the man checkpoint and parked the vehicle. As soon as I got out, the Kurdish soldiers started coming in from all directions to shake my hand. Only moments before I had been worried about getting my head cut off in the desert and now I was being fatted as a hero even though I hadn't done anything besides showing up. From my very first day on the ground in Kurdistan, I was treated with the hospitality and gratitude that is rarely seen in Canada. The Kurdish soldiers knew that I didn't have to be there, and that I had chosen to fight alongside them. More than once, I heard them lament that more of the Kurdish diaspora hadn't done the same, but it's hard to fault a man for not wanting to fight a brutal enemy like ISIS. Four Peshmerga soldiers brought me into an office full of high-ranking officers in uniform. It was clearly a place where planning and logistics got done, with maps covering the walls and paperwork strewn over wooden desks. The men with stars on their shoulders and braided cuffs dropped what they were doing when I entered and embraced me with big smiles and offered cold drinks. To say that they were happy to see a Westerner who had come to help them fight ISIS was an understatement. At the time, the war against ISIS was very much in doubt. The jihadis made stunning territorial gains during the summer months, routing the Iraqi National Army, and even pushing back the Kurdish Peshmerga in a surprise offensive. The Kurds had managed to stabilize their lines after some heavy fighting and with the help of American-led airstrikes, but it was clear that my arrival was a boost for morale. Without question, the soldiers on base thought and hoped that I would be the first of many trained Westerners who would help their cause, and I certainly shared that hope. The officers in the room could speak English and were easy to talk to, This was the exception in Kurdistan. I had done my research before leaving Canada, and knew right from the beginning that communicating with the Kurds would be a constant challenge. It's not a cosmopolitan place, and the vast majority of its people have little or no knowledge of the English language. We would communicate most of the time using hand gestures and body language to get basic points across, but for more in-depth conversations, we needed smartphones. Using Facebook on our phones, the Kurds and I were able to use Google Translate to decipher messages and understand each other throughout the length of my mission. My phone was not only a lifeline to the outside world, but also a mobile translator. One of the officers gave me an Essie cigarette, which seemed to be the brand of choice in Kurdistan, where almost everybody smokes. You need to get rid of this, he said while patting his cheeks. Like a fool, I had let my beard grow before leaving Canada because I assumed that everyone in the Middle East had one, and that facial hair would help me fit in. I was wrong. Only terrorists had beards, the officer said. It was another example of how the Kurds have adopted Western customs. In the Peshmerga, you might see thick and dark mustaches, but never a beard, just as you wouldn't in the Canadian army. I was starting to appreciate the Kurds more and more with every minute. That afternoon, the razor came out and the beard came off. I was shown to my quarters, a large room that belonged to Lieutenant Ali. I stashed my bags and changed out of my civvies into a green Peshmerga camel uniform, but I wore my PPCLI beret and cap badge, as well as a small Velcro red and white Canadian flag on my breast, so that my regiment and country were proudly visible and represented in the fight against ISIS. On my shoulder patch, there was an embroidered Kurdish flag, a red, white, and green tricolor with a sunburst in the middle. The red symbolizes the blood of those who have died for the country. Green represents the color of the countryside. White is the color of peace. The sunburst in the middle stands for life. It's sometimes referred to as the colorful flag, and it's a stark contrast to the menacing black and white flag of ISIS. Flags are important symbols that send visual messages of who a people are and what they believe in. The brutality and the savagery of ISIS exudes from their flag deliberately, and the message they are sending the world is clear. The Peshmerga base at Sulaymaniyah is large, with thousands of soldiers and countless compounds, barracks and depots, vehicle yards and buildings. I was shown around and took in as much as I could until Lieutenant Ali showed up later that evening. When he arrived, I saw that he was tall, especially by Kurdish standards, and around the same age as I was, with thick, closely buzzed black hair. Ali had been a translator for the American army, and so there was no problem talking to him. "'Sorry about not being at the airport,' he said. "'I just got back from Julula. I didn't tell him that I had been shitting bricks the entire time that I was in the truck with the four strange soldiers he had sent in his place." Jalula is a city north of Baghdad and was at the center of some of the heaviest fighting taking place along the front. Ali was an intelligence officer, and his unit was currently stationed there, but he had managed to get away from the front for a little bit. It's crazy Danza. Eh? Lots of fighting. But we are pushing Daesh back. Daesh. From what I understand, it's a derogatory term, an acronym for ISIS that is commonly used in the Middle East. Some politicians in the West tried to adopt the term when talking about ISIS, but it never really caught on. But then there are the Shia militia, and they are just as bad. The Lieutenant had just finished a brief account of what was happening in Jalula, and from everything I saw in Iraq, Ali's description of the Shia was pretty accurate. The war in Iraq is such a muddled mess of competing factions that it's hard to get a solid grip on the power dynamics of the region. The Shia are a branch of Islam and make up the majority of the Iraqi-Arab population. It's fair to say that they are an arm's-length ally of the West in the fight against ISIS, but it's an alliance of convenience. More of a, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, kind of partnership. When Shia militias liberate towns and cities from ISIS control, the dogs of war are let loose on the populace, and they can't be called back. Atrocities in a similar vein to those committed by ISIS regularly occur. And yet... The reality is that the fight against ISIS can't be won without the Shia. Their fighters are vast in number and are backed up by Iran because they share a faith in the same branch of Islam. In fact, the Shia militias are so powerful that the central Iraqi government will one day have a hard time reeling them in. But beyond the Shia, there are a multitude of other groups involved in the war. In the north, there are Christian militias and Yazidis are allied with the Kurdish Peshmerga, In the south, there is the inept Iraqi National Army, which the Americans have tried in vain to mold into an effective fighting force. There are also the Iranian advisors and soldiers on the ground embedded with the Shia. Sunni Arabs make up the second largest demographic group and were favored by Saddam Hussein during his reign of terror. In the western reaches of Iraq, Sunnis are primarily allied with ISIS, yet in some other regions they are fighting against ISIS. In addition, there is a sprinkling of western special forces and volunteers like me, operating in the region. And how could I forget the PKK, the Kurdish guerrilla fighters who have come down from the mountain training camps to do battle with the caliphate. These are just some of the groups and factions in Iraq. It's muddled and confusing enough, but if you take into account the overlapping war in Syria and all the factions in that failed country, like al-Nusra, al-Qaeda, government forces, Russians, YPG, and the Syrian rebel army, to name just a few, the entire region starts looking like a dog's breakfast. It's like a game of risk with 50 different players, except the stakes are much higher. I drove with Ali to a government building in Sulaymaniyah so that I could get the paperwork for my visa sorted out. My original intention was to stay in Kurdistan for at least a year. I knew the war would not be over by then, but at least it would keep me in theatre long enough to feel like I had done my part in battling ISIS. I told myself that after 12 months I could reevaluate my situation, and determine whether I should leave or stay longer. Yet the longest I could get a visa to stay in the country legally was for three months at a time. That wasn't long enough for me. Three months seemed like too short a time to actually make a difference and achieve what I had set out to do. Don't worry. We'll get it sorted out. Later, Ali said. Later. Tomorrow. In a bit. Don't worry about it. The Kurds are experts at putting a problem on the shelf in the hope that it goes away. Also, you coming to Jalula with me is going to have to wait. I haven't gotten permission. What the hell, Ali? I said. As far as I knew, everything had already been set up and cleared for me to be on the front in an active unit. But as I was the first Western volunteer with the Peshmerga, there were a lot of grey areas in the Kurdish chain of command that both Lieutenant Ali and I had to navigate. What the hell, man? It bore repeating. If I'm only here for three months, I need to get into a combat unit now. Don't worry, don't worry, he responded. There were those words again. The lieutenant said he would see what he could do. With only a three-month visa and no guarantee that it would be renewed, I felt compelled to get to the front as soon as possible. I believed Lieutenant Ali when he said he would do everything possible to get me to the front quickly, but I decided to take some initiative and not wait for a posting to fall into my lap. When we got back to the Peshmerga base, I fired up my computer and made contact through the secret Facebook group with the Kurdish Swede who I knew had contacts with the PKK. The PKK are Kurdish guerrilla fighters who have a long history fighting for Kurdish independence. Turkey and Iran hate the PKK, the Kurdistan regional government distrusts them, and the West has labeled them as terrorists. In short, the PKK is full of unsavory characters. However. They are also key players in the fight against ISIS. And because they are unrestrained by government and international diplomacy, attaching myself to them offered an immediate chance to see combat against ISIS. And that's what I wanted most. The Kurdish Swede got back to me with the message that his contacts in the PKK were keen to take me on board and that there was a guarantee of seeing action with them. Excellent. This was an opportunity. I broached the subject of joining the PKK with Lieutenant Ali, at least until I got clearance with the Peshmerga chain of command to get placed on a frontline unit. He immediately tried to talk me out of it. You won't like it. They are bad people and can't be trusted. He didn't say I wouldn't be safe with them, but he implied it. Still, I had traveled around the world to fight ISIS, and with a compressed timeline, the PKK offered the best chance of fulfilling my goal. However... Joining the PKK wasn't as simple as walking up to a recruitment station and signing my name onto a piece of paper. The secretive nature of the organization ensured that making contact was a clandestine affair. No doubt the Peshmerga Brass would take a giant shit on Lieutenant Ali if they realized he was introducing me to these people. From the Kurdish Swede, I had a name and an address for a guy I'll call PKK Ali. It gets confusing because there are a lot of Ali's in Kurdistan and Lieutenant Ali and I went to meet PKK Ali. When we got to the house, I was searched and briefly interrogated. Do you still want to go through with this? Lieutenant Ali asked. I wasn't sure of the answer, but I felt like I couldn't turn back now. The PKK escorted us to another safe house in Sulamanea, where about a dozen PKK fighters were hanging out. They looked rougher than the Peshmerga soldiers on base, and their stoic demeanor left no doubt that these guys were battle-tested. PKK Ali emerged from another room and greeted us warmly. If I chose to join these guys, he would be my commander. He seemed courteous, but there was definitely something unnerving about the middle aged man. Maybe that's just the feeling that comes from knowing he belonged to a designated terrorist organization. With Lieutenant Ali acting as an interpreter, I was told that this unit of PKK would be leaving for the front near Kirkuk in a couple of days. There would be 50 of them, and they would be happy to have me join. And I'll be free to leave whenever I want, I asked. Yes, yes, the PKK commander said in English. We made arrangements and two days later I was riding in the back seat of a truck with Lieutenant Ali to a small PKK compound just outside Kirkuk. Are you communist? Lieutenant Ali asked me. No, I scoffed. I hated communism. These guys are. Just go along with it. And don't think of touching their woman. All of their fighters are celibate. Yeah, yeah. I had done my research and knew this already. Still, the lieutenant was worried because if anything happened to me, his chain of command would come down hard on him. As far as the Peshmerga were concerned, Lieutenant Ali was responsible for me, and they didn't want the bad press that would come from a Canadian veteran being killed or declared MIA in the war against ISIS. You have my number. I'll check in with you, but call or text me if there's ever a problem. Chapter 3 In bad company, 21st November 2014, Dekuk district, northern Iraq. It wasn't much of a base, just a remote cluster of dilapidated homes, but it was very close to the front, only about 400 metres from a low earthen berm that stretched across the barren landscape, marking Kurdistan's frontier with ISIS. The enemy-controlled territory was about a kilometre past this low protective wall of dirt, And it was here at the PKK base that I first saw the infamous black and white flags of the Islamic Caliphate, just visible without binoculars in the distance, and something stirred in my soul because I knew what those banners symbolized. When Lieutenant Ali and I stepped into the main building of the PKK forward operating base, the FOB, a two-story house, it was all hugs and smiles from PKK Ali and his men, yet I could see that that lieutenant was still skeptical. "'I'll be in Jalula for a while,' he told me right before leaving." Remember to call if you need anything. Since my arrival in Kurdistan, the Peshmerga had treated me like an officer and an independent volunteer not under the Kurdish chain of command. In other words, I had privileges and was free to come and go as I saw fit. I soon realized that the PKK didn't share this notion. As soon as Lieutenant Ali's truck pulled away, the PKK's congeniality started going sideways. The smiles disappeared just as Lieutenant Ali's white Toyota vanished into a cloud of Iraqi dust. I sensed the change in attitude and busied myself by organizing and checking my belongings and making sure that everything I needed would be readily accessible for when the time came to head for the front. There is no indoor plumbing in this part of Iraq, and so I left partway through my kit overhaul to take a leak outside behind one of the buildings. When I got back, a man named Agar and several other PKK fighters were milling about my belongings. "'What's inside your bags?' Agar asked. He was PKK Ali's right-hand man. I was taken aback by his question.' It could have been an innocent question, but something in Agar's voice told me something was up. Closing gear, I answered as vaguely as I could. I was highly suspicious now, and I didn't want to give these men any info except the bare minimum. I see, Agar said. Any electronics? I have a computer, I replied. And with this answer, one of the other PKK started rummaging through my bag. I kicked the pack away from the searching hands, and the men scowled. Can we see? I had a little choice. In the army, I had always hated impromptu kit inspections, usually conducted by sergeants with an axe to grind, which was always trouble. Inevitably, I would be missing some insignificant piece of kit, and then I would take all kinds of crap. But at the end of the day, you were still a soldier under Canadian law and the Queen's regulations. Unsurprisingly, nothing could compare with the stress of having a PKK kit inspection. I knelt down and showed Edgar my civvy clothes, my gear... Computer and even a flare gun and solar panel I had picked up in a local market in Sulimanea. Where's your phone? There was no point denying I had one. Egar and several other fighters in the PKK unit had already seen me using it when I fired off a few messages after my arrival. I patted my pocket. Egar nodded his head. Thank you. Now I knew that something bad was happening. This wasn't normal behavior. I started shoving all my gear and clothes back into my bags and then opened my computer with a sense of urgency. The brief conversation had rocked me, and there was no doubt that Agar was preparing to confiscate my phone and computer. I began frantically deleting all the porn on the hard drive in case the chaste and celibate PKK should find it. Just as I deleted the last file, one of the PKK fighters entered the room and motioned for me to join him outside. I sighed with relief that I had managed to delete everything and then stashed the computer away. When I walked into the evening air, PKK was on his cell phone, leaning against a stone wall with Agar at his side. The last time I had seen PKKLE in Sulemenea, he had been all smiles and jovial, and was the same when I first arrived on his base not even an hour earlier. But he didn't look jovial any longer. He dropped the phone slightly from his ear and waved me over, and then pointed to Egar while resuming his phone conversation. Egar hadn't seemed overtly friendly, and his face seemed more rigid now, as did PKKLE's, and I knew from their expressions that a lot would change in the next few minutes. We need your phone and computer. Egar said with PKK Ali nodding in agreement. Egar was polite, but his tone made it clear that it wasn't a request. Why? For your safety. These things are distractions. It doesn't matter where in the world you are, when you're getting screwed, it's always for your own good and safety. Now please, give them. No. Now it was Egar's turn to be taken aback. No, I repeated, sternly, and I put on a calculated show of indignance. I was alone in a strange land with people who had been designated as terrorists, and I knew I wasn't going to win this battle. Still, I had learned on the streets of my youth that a thug only respects force, and that a show of strength is always better than a display of weakness. It's the law of the jungle, or in this case, the law of the desert. Edgar wore a look of creeping anger and turned to PKKLE, who abruptly ended his call. The two men spoke briefly, and PKKLE shot me a look of surprise and anger when he understood my defiance. Agar rounded on me, and this time he was menacing. If you want your safety, you will hand over your computer and phone now. His raised voice brought a handful of other Kurds to the entrance of the main building, and they looked on at the standoff. I saw the onlookers at the door and realized that PKKLE and Agar wouldn't be able to back down with the spectators watching. They couldn't afford to lose face in front of their own men, and I figured I had pushed them far enough. The computer I could live without, grudgingly. But I desperately didn't want to give up my phone, my only link to the world outside of PKKLE's unit. I felt I would be helpless without it, and that my chances of eventually leaving these guys would be severely diminished. You can have my computer, but I need my phone to talk to my family. There was no way they were having the phone. I offered a way for all of us to get out of this with our egos intact. I ended up keeping the phone, but the fact that I had to fight for that privilege told me that I was in bad company. Things didn't get any better after that. I hadn't made friends with PKK-LE and Agar, and now it was time to alienate the ordinary rank and file of the unit. pkk LE's fighters, about 50 men and a half dozen women, were dressed in an assortment of olive green and drab brown garb, which blends well into the bleak and barren landscape of Kurdistan. The fighters were further outfitted with black and white checkered headscarves, bandoliers of ammunition, and AK-47s. In broken English, the men and even some of the women fighters started pressing me to wear their style of uniform. They weren't at all happy when I said that I wouldn't, choosing instead to wear the multi-camo uniform that I had brought from Canada. I also had a British Army-issued combat coat in an arid camo pattern that would keep me warm in the Kurdish winter weather. I had traded some Canadian Forces gear to an English soldier stationed at CFB Suffield in southern Alberta. The kit I had arrived in Kurdistan with was badass, and I wasn't about to exchange it for some PKK guerrilla uniform. The PKK also asked me to assume a nom de guerre. Other Western volunteers who arrived in Iraq and Syria after me have chosen ridiculous names to go into battle with. Some are Kurdish names, and others are just stupid, like Necromancer and Warhammer. I can remotely understand assuming a Kurdish name in the hopes of fitting in better, but the people who fall into the second category have watched way too many movies. I told my PKK host just to call me Dylan. Even though I was with the PKK, I was first and foremost a Canadian volunteer, and I had absolutely no desire to assume a false Kurdish identity. I could tell that that ruffled their feathers, and I worried I hadn't made a good first impression. For the first time since embarking on my mission to fight ISIS, I realized that I had made a mistake. Lieutenant Ali had been right. I should not have gotten mixed up with these people. The PKK has always been a nationalist guerrilla movement, but it is also staunchly committed to communism. During any downtime, the PKK fighters would take the opportunity to try and indoctrinate me on matters of state and the theories of militant socialism. The PKK are hardcore Stalinists, and they are driven by a peculiar religious fervency. Their founder, Abdullah Ocalan, who was imprisoned by Turkey for 30 years, is worshipped as a deity, and Marx, Lenin, Mao, and Castro are his prophets. As with good communists everywhere, God has no place within their ranks, nor do Muhammad or the Koran, from what I could tell. Suffice to say, ISIS has a special kind of loathing for the secular atheist PKK. What do you think of communism? What do you think of Che Guevara, Chavez, and Castro? The PKK often asked. Uh, they're okay, I guess, I would answer out of self-preservation and nothing more. I really thought, I hate communism and your attempts at re-educating me are pathetic and a waste of time. But I was playing the game. Unfortunately for the true believers in the PKK, their attempts to sway me were a notch below futile. I'm from small-town rural Ontario, and a strain of libertarian conservatism runs through my bones. My own father is a member of a provincial parliament in a conservative caucus, so it's genetic, I suppose. Of course, I never told the PKK this bit of information. Listening to them talk in broken English about equality, comradeship, American imperialism, and the trials and tribulations facing the workers of the world was a small price to pay for the chance to get at ISIS. Such nonsensical discourse would be a dream for all the university kids back at home enrolled in Marxist theory courses. You can see them proudly wearing shirts and caps emblazoned with Che's iconic image. Those people disgust me with their ignorance. But if it took giving communist tyrants an intellectual pass on mass murder and economic ruin in the remoteness of Iraq to get some trigger time against ISIS, then so be it. Hell, I would have quoted from Mao's Little Red Book if it would help me get to the front sooner. I just grinned and bore the nonsense. At least the PKK weren't hypocrites, though. It was impossible for me to doubt their commitment to the flawed communist ideology. I'll give them that much. You can see it in the request for equality, that most beloved and sacred tenet of communism. The PKK and the Syrian branch of the same movement, the YPG, are dedicated to equality with women serving alongside men in combat roles. This strident gender equality is another thorn in the side of ISIS, and that's putting it mildly. Battlefield rape is only the beginning for the women of the PKK and YPG who are captured. If women are young and attractive, sex slavery comes next. Yet no matter the age or beauty, torture and death are the results. It is common knowledge in Kurdistan that it's better to save one final bullet for yourself than to be captured by the enemy. This wisdom is even more true for the female fighters. I personally don't agree with women being on the front lines for a variety of reasons, mostly because to me, it goes against the laws of nature. But at the same time, I saw their effectiveness against the enemy, especially as snipers. The Kurds aren't really in a position to turn away female fighters because they are outnumbered by ISIS and the stakes that are attached to a Kurdish military defeat are way too high. In traditional European and Western styles of warfare, the custom is to spare women and children. This ethos simply does not exist with the jihadis. If Kurdistan were overrun by the ISIS hordes, the women would suffer just as much as the men, maybe even more so. So I suppose they have a right to be on the front lines. There was one woman in PKK Ali's unit who was stunningly beautiful, with long, shiny black hair, and a fit body that showed even when covered in this ugly, ill-fitting, and unflattering military attire. She was also remarkably deadly, and had accounted for several long-distance kills with a sniper rifle. Her name was Zendi, and she caught my eye almost immediately. I looked away only when I remembered Lieutenant Ali's words of caution about staying away from the PKK women but a woman like that is really hard to ignore. Besides shunning an assumed PKK identity, and feigning interest in communism and Marx, I was issued a weapon on my second day with the PKK. I asked for and received an M16 rifle, instead of the more commonly found AK-47. Only one other PKK fighter on base had an M16, and he had it equipped with a sick thermal optical scope that turns the darkest night into day. Optics of any kind are extremely rare in Kurdistan. Some of the other weapons I saw included a homemade 50 caliber sniper rifle, light machine guns, and mortars. However, the most interesting beast of war on the base was what I called the Killdozer, a bulldozer that had been modified for battle. The cab was armored with metal plates, and there were portholes to shoot from. The Killdozer was just one example of how necessity and a lack of resources have forced the Kurds to get creative with their weaponry. I took part in some training exercises with the fighters, mostly clearing houses while in an advancing maneuver. Taking back territory from ISIS can be painfully slow and costly in terms of human life. ISIS is adept at lacing towns, villages, and homes with mines and IEDs, and they are often clever and sinister in their placement. They mine doors and entries, as well as bridges and gardens. Sometimes, the jihadis will deliberately leave their black and white flags hanging in abandoned positions that they have mined the shit out of, tempting Kurdish soldiers who want to claim a battlefield trophy. The Germans in the Second World War did the same thing with Nazi flags. All of this poses a huge challenge for the Kurds, because whenever ISIS is defeated in battle, the Kurds have to waste time by disabling all the mines and homemade explosive devices left behind. This hinders the advance and allows ISIS to make a short tactical withdrawal while depriving the Kurds of decisive victories. But to save the lives of soldiers, there is no other option than to slowly and methodically clear houses of the mines and the traps. However, the PKK is primarily a guerrilla force, and most of its members' training is ambush-oriented and done deep in the Kwandil Mountains. I tried to pass on some of the training I had learned while in the Canadian Army, but the PKK were dismissive. They apparently knew best and didn't care to learn about corner drills and the Canadian techniques for clearing rooms with the cutting of the pie technique. They were equally ambivalent about the importance of not telescoping your rifle barrel when firing from windows and concealed positions. They didn't care to learn anything new. The camp routine was fairly predictable. We woke up at 5.30 in the morning, ate a breakfast of beans, rice, and bread, did some training until lunch, which was again beans, rice, and bread, relaxed in the afternoon, and then ate some more beans, rice, and bread for dinner. Often I would catch the PKK fighters eyeing my phone, and I never trusted leaving my gear unattended. The PKK live an austere existence based on a lack of resources, but also in accordance with their communist ideology. It's hard to find a chair or a couch in a PKK base because they are considered unnecessary luxuries. My quarters were no different, containing only our weapons and the uncomfortable bedrolls that we slept upon. One of the fighters I shared the room with was named Mark. His real name was Merxus, but it had been anglicized to Mark when he had lived in London. He could speak a semblance of English and was a nice snuff guy. However, Mark had come from a troubled past that included a stint in a British jail for robbery and drug charges. In between getting caught up with the British law, my new roommate had met a girl and was madly in love. The problem was that his now ex-girlfriend didn't quite feel the same way and wouldn't respond to his texts or calls. Mark asked and pleaded with me to message the girl on his behalf with a declaration of love and longing, and though it was awkward, I sent the text. The girl wrote back basically saying F off, and that she didn't care that Mark was risking his life fighting ISIS and might be killed any day. She was a white Brit, and the war didn't concern her, All PKK fighters take a vow of celibacy because they have to be fully devoted to the Kurdish nation and nothing else. However, Mark would have broken this rule in a second for this girl in England. I'm not sure what the PKK protocol is for texting ex-girlfriends, but judging by his discretion, it was probably frowned upon. Not that I cared. I actually felt for the poor lovesick soldier, and I could relate. I had recently come out of a relationship with a girl back in Canada, and though I missed the idea of being with her, it wasn't meant to be. Chapter 4 First Fire The PKK base was close enough to the front that we could see the enemy lines over a kilometre away. Their flags were visible, but not much else. Through binoculars, we could see enemy trucks periodically arrive to resupply the enemy, but there were never any quality targets. Firing at this range would be useless and mostly a waste of ammunition. It was the same for the enemy, but that didn't stop the jihadis from taking potshots at us, hoping to get lucky with a a one-in-a-million shot. I had been warned that the base often came under indirect fire from ISIS fighters, and on the second night, while sitting around drinking tea after dinner, I heard a series of thuds smacking the upper exterior wall of our compound. Dash bullets, Mark said to me, probably seeing the confused look on my face. I was ready to don my gear and assume the battle stations, but the rest of the Kurds paid the harassing enemy fire little, if any, attention. They were used to it, and knew that they were safe in the compound. A few of the men went outside and blasted their rifles towards the enemy, and then returned a moment later. They were just letting ISIS know that we were still around, that they wouldn't have their way with us if they tried anything. My blood was up from the enemy fire and the Kurdish response, and though it wasn't a close call by any stretch of the imagination, it was my first whiff of enemy fire, and I had a hard time sleeping that night. Yet this was nothing compared to what I was to witness in the coming days, not even close. 23rd November 2014. Sentries were needed to keep watch of the base's perimeter at night, and I volunteered right away. Would I rather have had a few extra hours of sleep? Most definitely. But what was needed now was a show of enthusiasm and eagerness for the PKK. PKK Ali seemed surprised by my keenness given our earlier showdown over my phone, but he nodded approvingly nonetheless when I stepped up for the night's watch. My rehabilitation among the PKK had begun. I didn't need to be friends with them, but I did need to be confident that they wouldn't knife me in the back. Sentry duty meant keeping to the shadows, watching and waiting quietly for any disturbance and hoping to God that nothing happened. If everything went well, you could crawl back onto your thin mat that we called a bed and sleep a few more hours until sunrise. In Afghanistan, I had pulled sentry duty on a rotational basis at Camp Phoenix, which meant sitting in an RG-31 armored vehicle, staring at a screen being fed live video streams of the camp's perimeter. The Taliban's weapon of choice included trucks heavily laden with explosives and driven by suicidal jihadis. On just my second night in Afghanistan, a special forces base less than a kilometer from Camp Phoenix was rocked by a 2,000 kilogram car bomb, and a follow-through suicide attack with small arms. You don't forget being woken up out of bed from a shockwave like that. The Taliban used suicide bombers to instill terror in the enemies, but these attacks were primarily attritional and psychological in nature. Unfortunately for the Kurds, ISIS picked up where the Taliban left off, vastly improving upon the tactical application of the vehicle-borne suicide attack. An ISIS attack often starts with simultaneous detonations of suicide vehicles laden with oil and explosives. These suicide trucks blow multiple holes into the Kurdish lines and signal the beginning of a larger attack. ISIS fighters take advantage of the temporary chaos and confusion and funnel into the newly created gaps, threatening the flanks and rear of Kurdish forces all too often. At the time of writing, ISIS has just taken over the city of Ramadi using similar tactics. I looked up to the moon partially shrouded in clouds, and stamped my feet to keep warm in the desert cold. The front was covered in darkness and seemed quiet, but that meant nothing. ISIS fighters were only a kilometer away, well within range of delivering indirect fire, or worse launching a suicide attack that would blow the exposed outpost apart. If that happened, I would dive into the closest of the unfinished concrete blockhouses and try to survive the initial blast. After that, I would fire my M16 at the enemy, being sure to save one final bullet for myself. Your mind wanders into dark places when you're tired in the night. There were rumors of the enemy being equipped with night vision goggles, and that's what scared me the most. One man with a set of night vision goggles would be godlike in this war, and that thought alone caused me to instinctually dip my head lower into the sandbag redoubt. I needed my own night vision goggles, but the flight to Kurdistan and the accompanying preparation had decimated my bank account, leaving me meager savings that were nowhere close enough to affording even a basic set. There were a couple other Kurds standing watch, and the smoke from their cigarettes caught in my nose. The smell of burning tobacco triggered my own addiction and I pulled out a dart from my pocket and ducked low in the fortifications so that no one in the desert would see the spark of the letter. I exhaled and looked above the topmost edge of the sandbag wall encompassing my cold body, keeping the red tip of the cigarette out of sight. A military jet buzzed somewhere high above in the night sky, its engine partially masking the other sounds of the desert. There were the calls of strange animals and muffled voices, but whether they were Kurd or Arab, I could not say. I looked at my watch, and was happy that my shift was over in 30 minutes. But the hours spent under the winter moon had given me what I needed, time to figure out what I should do about my situation. A big part of me wanted to get far away from PKKLE. I didn't trust him or his companions, and they didn't trust me either. The problem was that Lieutenant Ali was far away in Jalula, so there was no chance of him coming to get me. I toyed with the idea of hiking through the desert to the closest town, but there were too many things that could go wrong, like losing my way, being caught by an ISIS patrol, or being fired upon by friendlies in the night. Stealing a truck was a marginally better idea, but it carried the risk of probably being summarily executed by PKKLE's men if caught. So I resigned myself that there would be no quick fix to my situation. Unlike the heat of battle, this wasn't a time for rashness, it was a time for calculated thought. There would be opportunities to escape, of that I was sure. What those opportunities would look like was unclear, but I would bide my time knowing that they would come. Now was the time for alertness. There were people outside the fob, and their muffled voices had returned. Were they Kurd or Arab? I let the cigarette drop from my mouth and crushed it with my boot into the dirt. I wondered if the other guards on sentry duty could hear the voices too. They should be able to if they were Arabic, or Kurdish friend or foe. I scurried from my post to where the closest Kurd on duty should have been, but the post was vacant. What the hell, I thought to myself. I checked in the concrete house adjacent to the small redoubt. It was barren too. Can no one else hear the sounds? And where are the other sentries? My rifle was loaded and I waited, listening for something but hearing nothing except my own breathing and pumping heart. Someone is out there, I knew it. I could feel it instinctively like when an animal knows a predator is close by. I wanted to warn PKKLE and the men, but I couldn't leave my post, especially when the next closest sentry was missing. My small pack was lying at my boots, and I crouched low over it and untied the strings to open it up. I carried a small Meg light, and I stuck it in my mouth, pointing its beam into the open bag. With my hands free, I rummaged through the stored items until my fingers felt the flare gun. I couldn't believe I was actually going to use this thing but I didn't want to start shooting at ambiguous targets in the night for fear of killing one of her own. I loaded the flare into the device and fired it into the night sky. Is this how I'm supposed to do it? I had never fired a flare gun before and I wasn't sure. I pulled the trigger and the flare rocketed into the darkened sky and then lit up the night. At first, I couldn't see anything except the desolate landscape and quivering shadows and then moving shadows. There were people out there. The fob started coming to life after I fired the flare. Apparently there were other sentries awake after all, and they started calling to one another in their own language. Then the bullets started flying. In the diminished light, and at that distance, I couldn't see if the people outside the fob were ISIS or Kurd, but their rifles answered that question soon enough. Bullets spattered the base, and then the darkness reclaimed the light. PKK fighters began firing into the blackness, but by the time the next set of flares shot into the sky the enemy had vanished. Nobody was wounded or killed. It was simply a skirmish that the defenders of this outpost had grown accustomed to. PKKLE found me and gave me a fatherly pat on the shoulder as if to say, well done. And the next day, I had my computer back.